Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, I said I like you, like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. Steve A.G. is a really sweet dude. The fact that he's funny is obvious to anyone who's ever come across him or his work. But there's a lot more to him. He's an actor. He's a writer. He does voiceover acting. He does music. He does incredibly beautiful photography. And he thinks about stuff a lot, which is why he is such a great guest for my Wheels Off series of conversations about creativity and the creative life. His path has had a lot of twists and turns. He's had some false starts along the way. I think one of the things that make him and his story so interesting is that he's kind of always challenging himself to change it up. He's always trying to figure out what would be the next interesting thing for him to do. He doesn't seem like he's frosty with that, uh, the ice of ambition, you know. It seems like he's kind of more interested in what is art. And I love that. One of the things that has come out of my doing these interviews for the last year and a half is that I personally find that I'm way more interested in the art of something than its commercial possibility. Um, The old 97s are in the midst of finishing up a new record right now, and the thing, I know this isn't about me, but here we go, (laughs) since I get to decide what to say during my introduction to Steve Agee's interview. Um, The thing that I've loved most about where I'm at right now as an artist is that I kind of don't care as much whether or not I think something is going to be successful, you know, commercially or in the eyes of the listening public or, you know, when it comes to the record label or even, you know, music critics. I kind of care about what's the art? 
What does this say about the people making this, me and my bandmates? What does this say about us? What does this say about the human condition as processed by us as we're making it? And that feels like a really good place to be. It feels like the right place to be. My point is that I feel like Steve Agee embodies that search for what is true about this thing that we're doing. And yeah, he works on big projects. When I sat down with him, we were in um, the uh, a trailer on the set of Suicide Squad, a film being directed by our mutual friend James Gunn. And to say that this was a big budget movie would be a giant understatement. This is a massive project. Um, and so when we did this interview... There were a number of things that we had to be really careful not to discuss. I had just that afternoon signed a non-disclosure uh, agreement to not say anything. And, and, but, you know, there we were on the set, and it took us a couple of takes to get the interview you're going to hear, because on the first take, I screwed up and talked about something I wasn't supposed to talk about. And then when we went back to try it again... Like like a dummy, I didn't unpause the recorder, so we lost some of that conversation. Third time's a charm. What you're about to hear is Steve and I's third attempt at a wheels-off interview. I'm so glad I got to sit down with the brilliant and weird and funny Steve Agee. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Wheels Off. We're here Take with three. <laughs> Steve Ag. Welcome to Wheels Off. How's it going, man? I <laughs> this is our third attempt. The first attempt was spoiled by a spoiler that I dropped. The second attempt was an equipment failure, and the equipment being my brain. But here we are on Wheels <laughs> Off with Steve Ag in his trailer <laughs> outside Peachtree City, outside Atlanta, on the yep. set of Suicide Squad. Where you are acting, and we are recording. We're doing it. It's so far perfect. <laughs> this is good because the last take, I was saying shit, and I realized I'm going off on a tangent that like <laughs> has nothing to do with the question that Rhett just asked me. But so here we are. That was all trial. This is great. Fake. Um, what creative project are you working on right now, and how does it light you up? Well, currently, I'm working on The Suicide Squad. A gigantic comic book action superhero DC Warner Brothers movie with uh, my pal James Gunn. And oddly, I'm working on it with uh, another friend of mine, Dave Dasmalchen, who you met uh, a little while ago. He's one of my best friends, and um, James is one of my best friends. And um, so I know a lot of people involved in this movie. I worked with them on Guardians of the Galaxy 2. And so it's... This is what's really got me lit up right now. I'm here, I've been here for two and a half months. I'm here for another... See, it's the end of November right now. I'm here till the end of February. And... Uh, so I'm stoked. It's kind of... It's also like the most secure job I've had in a while. Usually I'm doing like sitcoms or like guest starring stuff where it's like 
congratulations, you have a week of work, and then uh, you got to start hustling again. Is it weird being out here, though, kind of like in Georgia for so long? It is weird. When I, I had a really small part in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and I was here for one month. Okay. And that was... Yeah, you were great in that. That was easy. That was so easy, because it yeah. was just like... In and out. Here it's been like, you have to find a place to live. Like, I couldn't sublet my apartment. Oh. My landlord was like, nope, we don't sublet here. And so I was like, well, I'm not going to pay rent for a place I'm not living in for six months. And so I put everything in storage, moved out, and Mm. I'm basically homeless. (laughs) But then you come here and it's like, I have to find an apartment to live in, and usually I'd just go with a hotel, but six months is a long time for a hotel. So, um, and then you've got this trailer that we're sitting in right now, which is really nice, but I'd be totally happy staying in here. Isn't that weird? I wouldn't have a commute in the morning. That'd be nice. But then would like, you'd feel trapped maybe. Maybe. Well, there's, that's the thing is the first month I lived with Dave Dasmalchen and his wife and kids, they mm-hmm. got this big Airbnb, <laughs> which is, they're two and five. Yes. Yeah. And it's, but it's five minutes from the studio. It's in Fayetteville. Mm-hmm. And it was awesome. But like you said, it was a two and a five year old running around every morning directly upstairs from where I'm sleeping. So yeah. I, I was like, I got to get out. And that was just a small reason. The other one is like, what am I doing on the weekends in Fayetteville? There's not a lot to do. Atlanta, at least, there's, you know, aquariums and museums and really awesome restaurants. And you said he told you about that. What was the, you, the Obscura? Oh, yeah. Atlas Obscura. So Dave told me, because I drove my car across country as well, because I was like, well, I don't have an apartment, so I don't have a place to leave my car. And so I drove across country, and he's like, oh, dude, you got to check out atlasobscura.com. Whenever you're in a new city or state, you just go in and type type in the name of the city or the state, and it will give you a list of all this really cool stuff that most people don't even know about, like cool like hiking trails or landmarks or weird tourist things. And um, like I was in, I think it was Arkansas, and I, I typed in, and it's like, the, the largest natural bridge in Arkansas is this big stone bridge in the middle of a forest. And I, I drove like 30 minutes out of my way to go and take photos of this big bridge. So it's, it's been a really cool site. I found out about this old car junkyard north of Atlanta with like 40 acres of cars from like the 30s up to the 70s. And they're just stripped and just trees growing out of them. It's wow. really cool. See, I, I think your photography is so good. It's really beautiful. Thanks. But maybe it's because my exposure to it is mostly via social media. Yeah. I mostly see pictures of people. Yeah. So I would love to see these pictures of... I said something once on social media. Oh, no. I, I said it on Twitter. Like, take look at your photos on Instagram and the number of selfies you have is the percentage of crazy that you are. Okay, you saying that made me rethink my entire <laughs> Instagram yeah. plan for the last like year and a half. And I think it was even harsher than that. It was like however many selfies you have is is how like narcissistic. No, no, it was crazy. Just, it was, it was the crazy. percentage okay. of crazy. I read that it as <laughs> But you travel, you're 
a performer. Yeah. You have fans. And so you do owe it to people to post photos of yourself now and then. And you have a whole but gimmick of it, airplane selfies. That's true. And But I try and keep it like 20% or less now. I'm like... <laughs> Here, other people look. I gotta up my percentages of other people. I had a lot of people give me shit for that. Like a lot of people were. It's like, a good point. The people that I really called out who were just like <laughs> people who I have muted or unfollowed who were like, "Why did you unfollow me?" I'm like, "Have you seen your Instagram? I know what you look like. I see you like a couple times a month. I know what you look like." Oh, uh, but but your stuff is really. It's, it winds up being these really beautiful. Um, very like casual uh, photographs of your friends mostly I Candids, guess. Candids, yeah. Candids, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> um, but I really love it. Is that, oh, Do you thanks. feel like that's going to ever wind up being a book? or I mean, That's the plan. My only problem is I'll start to put stuff together for a book and then next thing I know like six months have gone by and I'm like, oh, all my photos are way better now than they were six months ago. That not, I don't with, want to put those out. You probably do that with music too, or I mean, do you do that with comedy too? I mean, is yes, that, and, and you're because you do music, comedy, photography, acting. Yeah, like you do all That's of pretty these much things. it. But <laughs> but you're doing all those. I mean, I don't know where you feel about your music right now. You're about to put out an EP, but they're, they're all at a pretty high level. Yeah, I the. Oh, oh, that's all right. You this can let it run. run. Speaking of casual. Hi. Fran, can I give that to you? Yeah. Is that your mic from sound? Or is that We're recording a podcast right now. This is Rhett. This is Ari. Hi. Hi, Ari. Nice to meet you. Oh, that's awesome. 7.30 a.m. Yeah, man. Oh, Steve's boy. getting his call so sheet fun. for tomorrow. We'll all right. Thanks, Ari. <laughs> um. Yeah, with music, I used to, I was doing a stand up show monthly at the Baked Potato Jazz Club in Studio City in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. And it was my friend Brendan Small, who created Home Home Movies movies. and Metalocalypse and is like, uh, like a classically trained guitar player. Like he's he's a shredder. Incredible, yeah. And, um, God, I loved home movies. We were talking one night and about comedy, and we were both bonding over music. And he's like, "What if we did a show at a music venue, a stand-up show? We get our we get our comedy friends to come and do a set, and then we'll have a band as well. And after their set, they do a song with the band. And we did that show for like two or three years, and um, I was. I had the idea of, I'll write a song every month, just a dumb comedy song, and at the end of a year, I'll have enough songs for an album, and I'll just use our backing band, because we played with, like, Brendan's friends with all these guys who, like, toured with Zappa, Mike Keneally, Joe Travers, like, Pete Griffin, all these dudes either played with Zappa, like, Keneally played, did arrangements for Zappa, guy's phenomenal this is frank not dweezil frank zappa okay. and then our drummer and bass player uh, uh joe travers and pete griffin respectfully respectfully respectively respectively yeah. thank you <laughs> i didn't pass english um <laughs> uh those guys toured with dweezil and Ahmet. Yeah. And well late and later just with dweezil doing uh, zappa plays zappa yeah 
the music of Frank Zappa. So they're like legit session players there. And our drummer, Joe, is like the, like the utmost authority on Zappa outside of Dweezil. Like Joe knows everything about Zappa. Joe's day job is, uh, working in the vault. Um, going through all of Zappa's tapes and digitizing and filing them because Frank would record everything he did. People would come to his house, he'd push play and record. And a lot of the shit is just unmarked. Wow. And so Joe's been working there for years. And I remember this was a couple of years ago. And I go, How close are you done to going through all the tapes? He's like, Not even like, a fraction. He's like, mm. he has so much stuff. And so when I, I got to a point where I was just not writing any more songs, I was just playing the same, like five or six songs over and over. And I was like, I just got to record these. And so we went out to Joshua tree, the Rancho de la Luna. Oh, suit. no way. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And, um, I just got those guys to come out cause they're so good. And they'd been playing them, the songs with me for a year that we would do them in just like a couple takes. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I went to Brendan's studio at his house, and he helped me with the guitar parts and vocal stuff. Dude. And so I have this really amazing sounding album that I've just been sitting on, and I'm like, do I just put this on iTunes and just like? Well, listen, nobody's monetizing the sale of music. It's touring, right? It's only touring, yeah. yeah, or or sync. You know, if you can get somebody to place you in a oh, movie yeah. or a commercial or yeah. something. Um, God, I'd love to hear that stuff, though. You I'll send do it to it. you. Put it out. I'll send it to you. But yeah, I got Dave Catching from Eagles of Death Metal, who owns Rancho de la Luna, is a really good friend of mine, and he's the one who let me come out and record there and. Um, He's been trying to put out, uh, start a label. He's going to start a label. like I don't know if it's called Rancho Records or Rancho de la Luna Records. But he's also simultaneously, talk about juggling a lot at once. He's He started this Mezcal tequila uh. company. And that's really taking off well. So he's been kind of concentrating on that. So It's funny, that's the thing smart musicians do, right? For a while yeah. it was fashion lines. Now it's like booze. Booze. Yeah. I don't know, man. I never. So have. look for Rancho Mescal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm jumping into the podcast game where you make less than music. <laughs> Sometimes you can. I know. I it's that's uh, uh, it's funny. I really love having these kind of conversations with people. Yeah, though, I do so too. that's been sort of the the reason that I've been doing it. Yeah. So all these things you do when you were young. And and you were starting to realize that you were different or weird or artistic. That's all I wanted to do, yeah. Was there like a moment where you knew that you were going to be weird? Did you know what it was you wanted to do? Did was there because you started with comedy and music kind of simultaneously? I it's for me. It started when I was like eleven years old, or no, probably like ten years old. I got a transistor radio. Uh-huh. I can't remember if it was for my birthday or for Christmas. It was probably Christmas. It was just it was. I mean, it was the size of an iPhone. Yeah, and uh, it just had a mono output. You would put an, a plug in one ear. Yeah, and I would lay in bed on Sunday nights when my parents would make me go to bed at like seven or eight or whatever time a ten year old goes to bed, 
and I would lay in bed listening to Dr. Demento. Yeah. He was syndicated every Sunday night. And so that's how I found out about all these crazy comedy. Like, that's how I found out there was more than just stand-up comedy. There was Weird Al. There was Spike Jones. There was just, like, it never ended. And, and that's where I got turned on to George Carlin, who was my favorite yeah. stand-up. And when I was 11, 11 years old, it's so crazy to me. 11, I bought my very first album with my own money. I bought George Carlin's <laughs> A Place for My Stuff. I was 11. <laughs> All my friends were buying whatever pop music was on the radio. And I went into Sam Goody and bought, like, George Carlin. That's awesome. So, like, I loved stand-up so much. And that was a life, that's been a lifelong uh, thing of mine. And, uh, but I grew up in a house where my dad was a doctor, my mom was a nurse, and like, there's no one artistic in my family. And I was just like, well, you probably have to be born into that. Uh, I'm, I, I don't know how I, I, I was like, I don't know how you do become a stand up comedian. And so I just, it was, I was just a diehard fan from a, a young age. And then, it wasn't until I was in college. And when I went to college, my first year, I was a biology major because I wanted to be a marine biologist. I was like, I snorkel and I scuba dive. I love the ocean. I'll be a marine biologist. <laughs> and then I failed biology because I just don't have a brain for for that kind of stuff. And um, And I was undecided for the rest of the year. And then my friend Sam was like, dude, you should just be an art major. And I just cruised through the, you know, the remaining four, three or four years as an art major. Got a degree in painting. I haven't picked up a paintbrush since I was 25 or 26. Uh, see, I wonder a lot about, like, how the transferal of the different uh, media that we... So I, I just wonder, like, you were getting sort of your artistic... I don't know if it was fulfillment, but you were, yeah. you were doing paintings. Like, that was, yeah, yeah. like, I can do this. And then at some point you realized that you could do comedy. It wasn't even so much paintings as just being around artistic people. Yes. I was like, oh my God, these people are weird and fucking awesome. Yeah. They're not stuffy business majors or math majors. I was like, I, I was like, oh my God, I should have done this right from the start. These people are great. And I started playing in band when I was you know a sophomore in in college and and we would play at open mic at open mics and that's how I found out about stand-up open at, at the same open mics and I was like I'm gonna do stand-up at this and so I was doing a lot at the same time I really was trying to figure out what I was best at it's funny because we did just determine that you're still doing a lot I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> but I honestly, my my biggest love right now is photography. It's It has been for like seven or eight years. I can see that. And it's funny too because, I mean, you're so good at, you know, stand-up comedy and, and being funny. And obviously acting right now, you're paying the bills hardcore yeah, with yeah, acting. Yeah. But it's this photography that's this really solitary thing. Oh, I love doing it. And Why? it started for me, it, photography for me started with, I just had a little point and shoot digital camera and uh, I would go to parties and I would just always be taking photos. And I just had a knack for just kind of 
taking these candid flash photos. And I also found I didn't have to talk to people because they're like, oh, I'll let you take your photo. Like <laughs> people, I didn't have the pressure of having to have conversations. I'm very socially awkward sometimes. And so it's just like a crutch or just a barrier between me and, you know, an awkward conversation with some stranger. Funny, I do the same thing with guitar. Like if I find myself at a situation, I'm the guy in the party that's, you want me to play? Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't play Wonderwall, but it's the same idea, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, good. Now I don't have to freaking talk to anybody. Someone was just asking me about Oasis today. It's that so weird. That, oh, Peter Capaldi, who's in this movie. He's Doctor Who as well. But Oh, wow. We, he and I bonded over music. We both love David Bowie. Oh, and uh, yeah, me too. oddly enough, we were just standing on stage while you were here, right after you got here, and he just turns to me and goes, do you like Oasis? <laughs> I was like, that's a weird question out of the blue like that. I go, yeah. I go, I go I'm go. i not super familiar with them, but I uh, I appreciate it, and I, I I see why they broke so huge. They, you know, they had a great sound, and... Um, it's funny, my British friends, Oasis is so giant in yeah. people our age that grew up oh, in is. Okay. Britain. It is. Because I know people that biggest. hate them, and I'm like, why do you hate them? I don't get why you would hate. Maybe if you thought they were too attitude-driven. Or A lot of people something. are like, they're a Beatles rip-off. Jesus Christ. What isn't? Like, why? Because they're British? Yeah. They're... <laughs> That's pretty funny. So, okay, so you brought up the idea of feeling socially awkward yeah I, I almost expected you to, to use the phrase social anxiety which because I that, have, yeah. so, so do you feel like you have that and I wonder to what extent that manifests itself in your art like is it something that's driven you to make art or is it something that's made it hard for you and how do you deal with it it's made it easier for me I I'm a person I would much rather I can stand on a stage and do stand up in front of 3,000 people but the thought of standing in an audience of 3,000 people, not, and it's not a, I'm better than standing. It's, it's a, I, I'm claustrophobic being around all these people. This is terrifying. Like it, it, it's, yeah, I, I'm, I'm much more comfortable, which is crazy because when I first started doing standup, I would be so nervous before a show. I was like, why am I doing this? This is, I have diarrhea all day. Why am I doing this? And then I do the show and I'm like, that was awesome. And then the next week, oh, I feel sick. Why am I doing this? And, uh, but it was just repetition and doing it over and over. And I still get a little nervous sometimes, but it's, I'm also, you know, 50 now. So I'm like, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. Someone booze? Who gives a shit? Um, but I, I had such bad panic and anxiety attacks that I started taking antidepressants when I was like 32. So I've been on it for like 18 years or something. And, and it's it made, like there, there was a point where I wouldn't leave my house. I didn't leave my house for like three months. Yeah. And if I did, I would have to leave in the middle of the night when there weren't crowds anywhere so I could go to the store and shop. And there were times when I'd drive to like a 7-Eleven at like 3 in the morning. And if I saw another person in there shopping, I would sit in my car and wait till they left. 
Was this after you had some renown and success? In no. I was working in reality TV. <laughs> what were you doing in reality? Post-production, mostly oh. uh, story editing and logging videotapes. This and is someone who lives in L.A. who just needs a job kind of job. It's a very yeah. common job in L.A. is videotape logger for reality shows. Oh, my God. And I started, it was when I was taking, I was taking classes at the Groundlings working at a Starbucks, and one of my teachers worked on The Real World. She's like, do you want a job working on, a, like, a TV show? She's like, I know it's not much. She's like, but it's it's not Starbucks. And I was like, yeah, totally. And so I worked on Real World Seattle, Real World Hawaii, Road Rules Mexico, Road Rules Australia, The Osbournes, Temptation Island 1 and 2, Joe Millionaire 1 and 2. It was like eight years of just reality TV. Jesus. What, it, there must and have that been... made me go insane. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I can't. This is... I hated it. But so you, you overcame that, though, the social anxiety that kept you from being able to be around other people. Well, that's when Clearly. it started when I was doing reality TV. Okay. I was like... I was just... I was like, I hate this job. I hate reality TV. They're manipulating people via editing to make... They'll pick someone that are like, this is the bad guy this year. And you're just like, this isn't fair to that person. I, I just had all these like morality issues and, uh, I started having panic attacks. And then one day I just got up and walked out of the office at like noon. And my boss was like, where are you going? I was like, uh, I got to go to the bank. He's like, all right, well, hurry back. And I just never went back. And they just kept calling, going, hey, uh, it's Paul. When are you coming back? And I was just not answering my phone. And just, I didn't leave my house for like three months. Oh. So, but what was the way out in the end? Was it the antidepressants or was it work? Or? Yeah, it was antidepressants because I wasn't performing anymore because of that. And like, oh. I remember having such a bad panic attack one night that I called Sarah Silverman and she's like, dude, she's like, you got to see a shrink. She's like, go to my doctor, talk to her. You could probably fix this with antidepressants, anti-anxiety. And I did. And I started taking Lexapro, too heavy of a dose. So I was like really tired for a week. And then we cut it back and it leveled off and like, Within another week, I was back out performing improv and stand-up, and, like, nothing had ever happened. Oh, that's fantastic. It was insane. It's funny how she comes up as someone who is, like, Tig was talking about how she felt like Sarah, like, saved her life. I'm like, oh my yeah, God. mine too. Is Sarah's like a around? guardian angel. She really <laughs> is, like, the best. She put me on her TV show, and that was my first... She got me my... Even before her Comedy Central show, she, when she was dating Jimmy Kimmel, this was right after the reality show debacle, and I was I had no job at the point at that point, and she was dating Jimmy, and she's like, you know, his show had been on the air the air for maybe a year, and she's like, they're looking for they have this new job position, they don't really have a name for it yet, but you would just be watching TV all day finding clips for him to make fun of in his monologue. And I was like, yeah, I'll take it. And so for like three years, I was just like sitting in an office above the El Capitan Theater on uh, Hollywood Boulevard, watching just the worst TV, like 
<laughs> religious television news like someone once said that it was like people are like oh my god you get to watch tv all day but it's like you go in and you watch like 12 hours of like the view and the yeah. home shopping network and like by the end of the day you go home and you're like i'm i'm not going to turn on my tv i don't want to watch tv and so I stayed there until he hired me as a writer, and then I wrote for a little while, and then Sarah's show got picked up, and that was that. That's great. Yeah. That's sweet. Well, I love the idea that, I don't know, that you had, that not that you had to overcome it, but that you overcame that. And I became sweet. so vocal about mental health because, you know, when I was, I would have panic attacks once in a while growing up, and it would prevent me from doing stuff, and you know, and they really started in college. They amped up when I was doing a reality TV show, but I'd have them like a couple times a year and they would scare me off of doing shit. Like the first time I had a panic attack was on a plane. And so I would equate flying with panic attacks. And so for years I didn't fly. And, um, and this was like pre internet really like this was in the nineties. And, you couldn't just type in a symptom and be like, oh, it's a panic attack. And, like, I would ask certain people, I, I'd be like, hey, man, do you ever, like, freak out when you're sitting in a restaurant and start sweating and your heart's racing? And they'd be like, no. And I'd be like, I'm dying. <laughs> and it wasn't until I moved to L.A. with my band that I would say something to someone. They'd be like, uh, yeah, that's a panic attack. I get them all the time. And then I'd ask other like artistic people, uh, yeah, it's a panic attack. I was like, Oh my God, this is great. And so I love talking. I'm so open about it and I can't talk about it enough. Like it, it helps so much to talk about that shit. So, uh, finally, if you could go back to, well, not if you could go back, if you met a 21 year old version of yourself now in uh. today's world with all the bullshit and the phones and the, what advice would you give yourself? I would tell myself to start meditating. Yes. I started doing that five years ago, and that was another game changer. And um, that would probably be the first thing I'd say, because I was just a stressed out, you know, you know, 20-something who was, you know, just kind of lost and didn't, didn't really have a career plan. And so I was stressed out a lot. You know, I got an ulcer when I was like 21, you know, from worrying about tests and stuff in college. Mm. And so I'd say, don't worry about any of this shit. Start meditating. Fucking watch what you eat. That was the big, I, when I was in my twenties, I could eat whatever I want. I had such high metabolism. And it wasn't until my thirties when I got that job at Kimmel and there was a kitchen next to my office, I was just sitting for 12 hours a day eating chips and shit. I, was, I gained so much weight at that job because I didn't think about metabolism. So I'd be like, keep, keep riding your mountain bike. Don't stop just because you got a TV job. <laughs> keep riding that mountain bike on the weekend. So it'd, it'd be exercise and meditate. It's kind of just love yourself in a way. Yeah, right? take, take care, care of yourself. How did, what kind of practice of meditation? I do Vedic meditation, which is uh, the 
basis of transcendental meditation. Okay. Yeah, that's so nice, the Maharishi Mahish Yoga mm-hmm. uh, yogi introduced meditation to the Beatles and he kind of westernized it and made it popular. That's what and called yeah. it transcendental meditation, yeah. but it was really Vedic meditation. So Vedic, which is what I do, and I have a podcast called We're No Doctors. You can go back and find old episodes with my meditation teacher where we talk about it. Uh, Teo Burkhart, great guy. Um, I would also recommend reading uh, David Lynch's book, Catching the Big Fish. Actually, I'd recommend the audio book because he reads it. And his, I love his voice. Oh, nice. Um, but, yeah, what was the question? Um, oh, I was just wondering what, because I Oh, yeah, Vedic. Transcendental. But it's yeah. not as expensive as TM's That's expensive. The thing is, I've been wanting to introduce it to my family because my mom and I studied it when I was 17. She was going through a divorce. Yeah. And she and I went and got inducted yeah. into trans- transcendental meditation. And we were given our mantras. And, yep. And, and I loved it. Yeah. And, and I've all, I feel like it's helped me through my whole life. Yeah. So I looked into it for my family and it's thousands and thousands of dollars. So you're saying that Vedic is. I will. I can put you in touch with my teacher. And um, he works on like a sliding scale, so it's it was way cheaper. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, I mean, two thousand dollars if you can afford it. Do TM. It's like it's great. You have no regrets. It was funny though how they marketed it as if it were like a this will improve your performance at work kind of a thing. It was very westernized the way yeah. they were marketing it. Yeah. But then when I studied it, all it was was just you know trying to you know achieve the unified field you know just yeah it was amazing i started doing it after my dad passed away uh years ago and i was i slipped back into this depression which i really couldn't shake and i had friends who were like you should try meditating and so i i started and I, like it really leveled me out and like made me feel just connected to everything like it like my road rage went away and like it was, it was, it's amazing. Meditation, I can't recommend enough. Oh, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. All right. My teacher, by the way, said, you know, it take, it's a three-day course, you uh-huh. know, when you take meditation classes. And uh, he's like, it takes me three days to kind of embed it in a person and teach it to them. He's like, but I could teach a child to meditate in half an hour. <laughs> and they would retain it for forever. That's how in our heads we are as adults. Oh. It's hard, it's hard to be a person. It really is. Yeah. But it's funny. I love what you said at the beginning about wanting to be surrounded by like weirdos, you know, because mm-hmm. I think so much about what I like love about our, people. about our job. And people will say to me, like young people will say, well, I, I want to get a job to where I make actual money. And so I don't have to worry about it all the time. And I'm like, but what's it worth? You know, yeah. Having to be surrounded by squares doing something you don't squares. love. Squares. You know. Yeah. It's. And for anyone out there listening who lives like in the Midwest or somewhere, you know, in like a small town who feels like completely isolated, like you got to really know that there are people out there somewhere. You can find them. There are people out there who are very like-minded and are into the same shit as you. Yeah, even in the smallest towns. Yeah. There's weirdos everywhere. That should be the next thing. That's the funny name of your album. There's weirdos everywhere. There's a poem in my in my poems book called "Weirdos of the World Unite." Oh, nice. It's true. Um, thank you so much for talking to me today. Yeah, man. I'm glad you came by. This is yeah. awesome. 
All right, Steve Agee, you rock. Party on. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. You we, paused it. I paused it. I didn't start it. <laughs> I've done that like five times. Oh my god! At the flush of shame. <clears throat> Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce, and I'm Nolan, and this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Grey Street.